Hello and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hey, everybody. Hi, all. Uh, hey, happy Labor Day. Happy <laughs> Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Uh, I used to watch Homestar Runner mm-hmm. in college, which dates me considerably. And there was an, <laughs> he sang a song that the lyrics were, Today, Day is Labor Day. <laughs> oh, my God. That's great. <laughs> so today birthday is labor day when this episode comes out guys and again we are continuing our series on the triangle uh the shirtwaist triangle factory the triangle shirtwaist factory that's <laughs> and right all of the horrors that come along with that story we're just gonna jump right in because there's a lot to discuss this week i briefly mentioned last time how bad the factories were and how poorly the workers were treated and how no one was advocating for them, right? Yes, you set the scene very well in terms of the negligence, the milieu of the early 20th century in which this takes place. Yeah. And how setting just, us up before the calamity. Yeah, so just not good it all was. And I also mentioned that they did strike at one point. So that was in 1909. They decide it, you know, enough is enough. Yep. No one is looking out for us. We have to advocate for ourselves. So this there's this humongous citywide strike that commences amongst the garment workers. Once again, it's predominantly women. Yes. And I mean, you know, striking and refusing to work, this is now becoming the thing, like a major part of this turn of the century moment because people are tired of this treatment. They're tired of being treated like shit. So it's not like it's the first strike in New York City. There have been plenty. Sure. Uh, so there's a, there's a template in place, if you will. And what they're looking for is uh, more money, obviously, a 52-hour work week, which is just like, oh my God, that's Ouch. what you're hoping for? <laughs> God. that You're compromising to that. It's so sad. Well, the wages are so depressed. They're like, well, we still got to make money. So at least 50 hours. Yeah. And this and this is where it gets really sad. Is like they want more money. They want this 52-hour work week. And that's their negotiation. And a better way for dealing with that unemployment of seasonal apparel change that it affects the business so horribly. But they're not really advocating much in terms of the safety because that's how poor they are. That the right. money to them is even more of a priority than the safety. It's like the to risks, them it's the like, risks are a given. Oh, yeah. And to them, it's like, you know what? Let's start here and we'll hopefully work towards that. But if we ask for all of this from these assholes up front, we're probably going to get none of it. So they they made the money and the and the hours the main priorities, which, I you know, you can't blame them for, for that. So, I mean, these owners, these factory owners, amongst them, of course, being Blank and Harris, the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, they're merciless. They're terrifying. They, upon the strike's beginning, they hire thugs. They hire ex-prize fighters to really? beat the shit out of these girls. And remember, guys, girls, mostly teenagers, girls in their 20s. These are mm-hmm. girls. And you have a fucking boxer coming around to punch these girls in the fucking face like disgusting because they don't because they want to work 52 hours a week like ah! we'll show you we'll make it so you can't work for two weeks yeah seriously you're looking out of the side of your eye with that bob that bobbin on the freaking sewing what i thought was also really funny was they hired sex workers and their pimps to pick fights with them on the picket line like okay i guess getting the whole community involved (laughs) and of course they're bribing the cops to get them involved and get them on their sides and so they they were all on board with beating the strikers as well and then of course carting them off to jail and saying oh she came after me first so of course i had to assault her and that's why i've hauled her into jail and one of the judges said to one of the women who got pulled before him uh, she was on strike against God and nature, <laughs> which is just like, holy talk. Very, masculinity. very Scottish enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. And these and guess where these ladies would end up? Blackwell Island. Yeah. 
you go from the being this like working class chick trying to do your best and God forbid right. you ask to be treated slightly better and you get carted off to one of the worst places in the city. And you got two black guys at Blackwell's Island. Yeah, broken women had like they were injured. They had broken ribs, broken skulls. I mean, this isn't this wasn't cute. No. No. And so barbaric is the word again I keep thinking. That is definitely the word. And and but this thing blows up. I mean, it's upwards of twenty thousand protesters at some point, strikers. And this is just um, the garment industry or is it across this the This is just the garment industry. Mm. Yeah. So it's huge. Um and even like some hoity toities. Uh, hear the clarion call like Anne Morgan. Okay. He's like, oh, these brave girls, we must help them. <laughs> but as it goes on for like longer and longer, people are getting tired of it. And even her and some of the other socialites who'd originally like, stood on strike with them because they're like, well, they're not going to hit us because then they're going to be in big fucking trouble. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they used their bodies, which was a very great thing to do, but they began to become more and more uncomfortable with the fact that this is a little socialist and I'm very rich and I like being very rich. So the socialism thing, I'm out. <laughs> right. Maybe I can advocate for the poor. Some of some segment of the poor that I don't deem are trash. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm part of the system. Yeah. She likes being rich mm -hmm. and likes being richer than these girls that sure. she's standing next to. So, you know, it's these motherless Mexican Irish whores. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, completely. <laughs> it's all all that. So, uh it's a cool story on its own. Um I I highly recommend reading into it more, but the most important thing is what what's the outcome? The outcome is they do get their hours and they do get their wages. Mm -hmm. There is some movement on that. And even Blank and Harris, who fought to the bitter end to not even give an inch, they did finally give it give it up and let them have those things. But as I mentioned last week, uh, they were one of the shops, one of very few shops that would refuse union workers right. in their shop. Right. That, yeah. They would never have a closed door factory, meaning only union workers would be hired. In fact, quite the opposite. They would never hire a union worker. So it tells you everything you need to know about these dudes. They're bad people and they don't care about these women. And so this brings us back to yeah. the day itself, March 25th, 1911. We're fast forwarding now. I have to give a very intense trigger warning. I'm sure some of you already know, obviously, what's coming. But if you've never heard the details of this story, they are just beyond terrifying and they're very gruesome it's it's really really horrible and i normally don't focus on these types of details in our stories because i just the gr the gratuitousness of it for the sake of just shock i i'm not a big fan of that stuff i don't like listening to that stuff myself i don't know about you luke but i felt that because of how this event has changed all all of our lives, whether you've realized that before or not, these people really deserve to have their stories known, and we should really bear witness to their experience. But um, it's perfectly okay if you feel like you need to skip the story. Obviously not you, Luke. <laughs> and this is a pretty well-known story. So, yeah. you know, you know what you're getting into here. You do. So hopefully you just skip this episode entirely if you if you know the basics of what happens here. So it's March 25th and it is a Saturday. And for the people who are working at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, that means it's a short day, short in quotations, because it's an eight hour day. Oh, they're not only making short shirts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they're not making tiny shirts. There's no... uh crop tops it's a shorter day of a mere eight hours and at approximately 4 40 as the workday is coming to its close a fire begins inside a scrap bin under one of the cutters tables at the northeast corner of the eighth floor mm. to this day i mean we'll never be able to fully confirm with certainty how the fire started but it seems more likely than not that it was a match or again possibly a cutter who was having a secret on the sly cigarette some have speculated because other fires had started this way before that it was actually sparks coming off some of the machinery in the room which that's Could totally be. plausible 
And again, we've talked about the oil situation as well. Very um, lubricated down, down there. Up so there. really, it really could have been any of these things because they, they just didn't do sort of the, they didn't have the technology and the ability to study fires the way that fire departments do now to understand sort of what was the source and all that. So we'll never, we'll never know. But from everything that I've read, uh, one thing that we do know is the reason why you don't hear much about the rest of the building is because it, it would seem that pretty much everyone else was gone because mm. um, it is almost five o'clock. It's it's 440. So some people maybe were privileged enough to not have an eight hour day on a Saturday. Right. Perhaps some places didn't have to work on Saturday at all. I don't know. What this is one of the really heart wrenching parts of this story is if it had just happened a little later, none of the triangle shirtwaist workers would have been there either because right. it's four fucking 40 and their day ends at five. Wow. So 20 minutes to Ten. go. I know it, it, it kills me. So the fire is observed first by smell before they know it, where it is. And immediately, once they locate it, there are attempts to put it out via those red fire buckets that I mentioned, that mm -hmm. amazing safety precaution mm -hmm. in place. Uh, but with the setting that I described last week, I'm sure you can imagine the fire is just immediately out of control. There's no way to stop it with mm -hmm. a barely a gallon bucket of water or two. And as a reminder, there's no sprinklers, right? So... <sighs> There is no sort of larger way to deal with this problem. However, one thing that was required at the time, and I didn't talk about this last week because I it's integral to this part of the story, hoses were required inside the building. And the hoses would be connected to essentially pipes that went up to the roof where there would be some sort of a cistern or um, a water tower, mm -hmm. if you will. So they did have those. And so men run into the stairwell to get the hose. They run back into the room and they turn it on and they don't work. What would later be discovered is the pipes that connected these fire hoses to the water tower that was on the roof of the ash building had a broken and rusted valve. Of course. So yet another horrendous oversight that probably should have been caught in some sort of inspection, but it this whole story is just about consistent failures on mm -hmm. the part of everyone. So just add that to the fucking list. A lot of negligence, yeah. Oh my god, it's un it's unreal how many things didn't have to happen in this story. So that's another one. So now, of course, people are fully in panic mode. As the fire spreads over their heads, it's catching on all the fabric and paper above them. People run frantically to the exits. Now, because of the way this room is set up, I explained it's these long workbenches, mm -hmm. which is not conducive to fire safety either. So there are some older women working there and they can't really make their way around these workbenches, whereas some of the younger girls, they're literally leaping not over them to yeah. get to the exits. And there's also large machines there. So if you have any level of handicap, you're in a very bad place in this room at this time. Mm. But if you could get to the door, you're already going to start to struggle because another fire hazard is the doors open inward. <laughs> By the stairway. Interesting. So that's going to create more congestion, mm -hmm. right? The doors are already narrow. And as we know, the stairwell itself is very narrow, designed ridiculously that way. So you've got a lot of people pushing forward towards this door. It's, it's total chaos. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is literally the perfect example of why fire drills are so fucking important. Sure. You have to learn how to have an ordered egress from an emergency situation. And these people just didn't – they were just operating in a very primal, completely normal, mm -hmm. animalistic way rather than there's a fire safety person on the floor being like, okay, we got to stay calm. Everybody single file. We've all been through a fire drill many times in our lives mm -hmm. at our workplaces. They're so important, guys. Take them seriously. This is the reason why you have to take them seriously. So if they're not moving towards the stairs, which is 
you know, a scary egress again, because it's dark, it's narrow, it's a difficult climb down, especially again, if you have any sort of difficulty walking. So people are looking towards the elevators and they're looking towards perhaps some of the other exits. Every second counts in a fire. And you you don't want to waste time trying to push past somebody to get down the stairs quickly. So these eighth floor workers are trying to get to the freight and passenger elevators as well as navigate these stairs. That single staircase on Green Street is only available because, again, the Washington side is locked. Right. And it is slow, it is narrow, it is dark, it is treacherous, and before too long, it is then filled with smoke and heat that is rising upward. Of course. And in spite of the chaos, this is actually an amazing part of the story that I that I hadn't learned before. Someone in that room had the presence of mind to make a call to the switchboard operator on the other floors. She wanted the switchboard operator to put in a call to the other floors to say, hey, this is happening, you need to get the hell out of this building. So the message reaches the 10th floor. And again, if you remember, that's sort of the admin floor where the muckety mucks are. And yes. that that day, Harris and Blank themselves are there. They're actually with their family that day, with their children. They've been touring them around. They, of course, immediately move towards evacuation. They've called the elevator up to come directly to them. I've read some things that said they tell them not to go to any other floors, to just come to them. Which Bastards. I buy that. That sounds like them. Right. They are able to get some people on this first round of elevators, but it's very quickly turning into chaos and it's probably not going to be the best way to get out of the building. Yeah. If you overload the capacity. Yeah. 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 So Harris and blank actually escape through the roof because their staircase that they have access to, they actually could get up to the The executive, the executive suite. So um, they did. Apparently, they were helpful to getting other employees out of there, the other employees on the 10th floor. They got them up to the roof, and they were actually helped off of their roof because uh, even then, NYU was right there. And so a professor and his students had seen what was happening, and they made their way to to the roof of the NYU building that was there. Mm. And they had found, like, ladders that had been left behind by some painters, and they made it so that Harris Blank and these other people could climb out. I think I think I read it was some it was close to like 50 in all mm-hmm. were partially rescued by these NYU way, you know. kids, which is amazing. Hmm. Yeah. So that's a nice a nice light in this horrifying story. Uh so here we are now. The 8th floor is struggling to evacuate and the 10th floor seems to be cleared. But unfortunately in the panic, no one has bothered to reach out to the 9th floor. And the people there don't even realize what is happening until the room is basically filled with smoke and fire. Mm. At this point, that exit to Green Street that the eighth floor people were able to use is now no longer passable. So it's not an option. Hmm. Many immediately run to the fire escape, which we mentioned in the last episode. As we learn, the descent is very slow and very difficult. It is similarly like a single file kind of thing because it's so narrow. So narrow. So scary. It's, yeah, and and really scary. You're dangling outside. Yeah. These women are on the eighth floor on a skinny, rickety fucking iron ladder walking down. And they're not, they're like, I I can't even, like, all of my fears unlocked in this one moment of this hellscape. Yeah. So as women pack onto it, because again, everyone is, they're not thinking of consequences. They're just trying to get the fuck away. Yes. So more and more people are packing onto this thing and this flimsy piece of shit, iron structure begins to pull from the building. Mm -hmm. And it is, like we talked about before, it's becoming manipulated also by the heat. So it's Mm -hmm. starting to bend and creak. And soon it's weakened to the point where everyone who is on it plummets to the ground. Mm. And that's about 20 people in total. Wow. So they've just lost another way out of this building. Mm-hmm. Others are running towards the passenger elevators. Uh, so the elevators could only hold about 12 people, but 60 or 70 were rushing at a time to mm. get into one. This is an account that I found from the New York Times. It's really intense. 
Thomas Gregory, an elevator man who works at 103rd Bleecker Street, said he was going home when he came to the fire. He says he ran into the building and made three trips in the elevator, taking down about 15 persons at each trip. He said he left the hallways of the upper floors crowded with frenzied men and women who fought to get into the elevator and clawed his face and neck. Mm. After the third trip, the machinery broke down, he said. He said there were two elevators when he went into the building. One was on the ground floor and one was on one of the upper floors. He saw no operator. And it would seem that besides this amazing volunteer operator guy who just strolled in there, like, bless him. Mm. Uh, there were two other gentlemen as well who operated the elevators, but they all encountered this same problem of this overburdening of the machinery. So on this third and final trip that this elevator makes in a panic people begin jumping into the elevator shaft to slide down the cables and land on top of the elevator. Oh, no. The first few people are successful in doing this, so others think, I'm going to do it too. But the elevator is lowering when they choose to do this. So it's becoming a higher drop. Yeah. And some people can't hold on to the cable. And so Ugh. now you have more people falling to their deaths. Getting Mission Impossible flashbacks here. I know. So here's an account from a man who survived the elevator, oh. Samuel Levine. I finally smashed open the doors to the elevator. I guess I must have done it with my hands. I reached out and grabbed the cables, wrapped my legs around them, and started to slide down. I can remember getting to the sixth floor. While on my way down, as slow as I could let myself drop, the bodies of six girls went falling past me. Oh. One of them struck me, and I fell to the top of the elevator. I fell on the dead body of a girl. Mm-hmm. My back hit the beam that runs across the top of the car. Finally, I heard the firemen cutting their way into the elevator shaft, and they came and let us out. I think others were taken out alive with me. In total, it would be discovered that about 36 people had died. They were laying atop the elevators. God. Yeah. So very... Desperation. Very scary, but it's, again, you're not thinking, you no. know what I mean? And if someone else did it successfully, I, I have to take the chance. So then, of course, people are like, all right, I'm going to try that, the Washington Street door. Mm -hmm. But it's locked. And this is another situation. This is a pretty famous thing. If you ever read any real news reports from the time, at this point, I mean, women are clawing and scraping to get out of the doors. And so they're mostly just continuously trying to open this door, open this door and they're crushing each other to get out mm -hmm. the green street door on the eighth floor. So women, women were literally crushed to death, just trying to leave mm -hmm. in addition to just being suffocated at a time sleeve. But women would be found after the fire bodies of women would be found after the fire, just huddled in masses by the doors, hoping for a way out. So the stairs are no longer an option. The elevator isn't an option. The fire escape isn't an option. So the only option now is the ninth floor windows. Mm -hmm. Something I haven't mentioned yet is there are an enormous amount of spectators. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was supposedly a beautiful day. And if you know anything about weather in New York City, March 25th is a fucking gamble. It can be <laughs> snow on the ground, freezing horrible in late March, or you could get a lovely day. We've had some, like, beautiful St. Pat's days and some that are, like, blizzard. Yeah, it is part of that, like, 50-day window where I always make the wrong decision leaving the house. Totally. I, I, no matter what I do. It's like, just take a jean jacket and just you'll be fine. You know. Yes, March is that. Yeah. Always. And this day was one of those rare, lucky, gorgeous late it's days in March. So everyone was out. I know. Again, going back to so many of these 9-11 parallels, this sure. was another one that really struck me. Um, so there's so many people out in Washington Square Park. Because again, this is right by one of the most popular and populated parks in New York City. Yes. So quickly people see what's happening. And by the time the building is fully engulfed in flame, there were allegedly thousands of spectators. 
people were running down from wherever they were to come mm -hmm. and see it. And of course, there are people in buildings as well who'd also been working that day watching this go on. So there's a lot of spectators for this event, which, again, the echo of 9-11 mm -hmm. there, too. Accounts that I read were... Um, Oh my God, spectators are, are screaming and fainting and getting mm. sick. They're flinging themselves on police barricades as if there was some way that they could help, which of mm. course they can't. There's nothing that they can do. I did read some accounts of men who initially tried to get like nets or something, but of course that didn't work. Women literally would bounce right off a net mm. when they'd fall and die regardless in these early attempts from civilians. This is one of the parts of this of this situation that is very different from 9-11 is because of the proximity of the event. Mm -hmm. These people were right there. Very close. Yes. Because at this point, the ninth floor, that's 90 feet in the air. That's not. No, you can see their faces. Yeah, no, you can talk to them. You mm -hmm. can talk to each other. And they did. They were trying to calm the women and let them know that help was on the way and like, don't jump, like stay where you are. Whereas, you know, 9-11, we can't see faces. You just see a person form so rather than individuals. So this makes it a very personal event for a spectator. Not to mention the spectators themselves are not necessarily in any immediate danger. So they're, whereas on 9-11, everyone's trying to get away yes. from this disaster. These people are there and like stuck in it. You know what I mean? So here's something from a United Press reporter. Uh, he wrote this at the time. There was a living picture in each window. Four girls waving their arms. Call the firemen, they screamed. Get a ladder. We heard a fire engine in the distance. Here they come, we yelled. Stay there. And it was actually about five minutes into the fire when the first fire alarm is rung. And the history of the fire of FDNY is fascinating and i maybe we've talked about this a little bit but like the early early fire departments i mean it's it's a community thing <laughs> like everyone has yeah. their own bucket <laughs> you got to bring your bucket to the fire and so literally the original fire alarm was people ringing a bell and being like hey something's on fire fire <laughs> um so the fdny as like an entity has only been around since i forget is it like the 18 60s or 70s is really not yeah, that old. Yeah, I was going to say the 80s, yeah. Um, yeah, so they are some of the best in the country already. We love you, FDNY. So this is ultimately what we what we would call a four-alarm fire. Right. And for those that maybe don't know that lingo, the amount of alarms is a reflection of the severity of the fire because the more alarms you ring, the more firefighters are going to come, the more houses are going to come. And using, again, 9-11 as an example, that was technically a five-alarm fire, although in reality, it was probably more like a 16, 20-alarm fire for the amount of mm -hmm. people that showed up. On this day, since they obviously didn't have radio communication, the first firefighters don't arrive until 10 minutes into the fire, which in this particular type of fire, in this environment, that's far too late. Mm -hmm. to, again, every second counts in a fire, and in a fire that is pretty much just being fueled by everything that's inside the building, it's so incredibly too late. And what's interesting about the New York City Fire Department at this time is they were not only some of the best fire departments in the country, they were one of the best equipped. They had all the new fangled stuff. They had the first, you know, engine quotes. Mm -hmm. It was still horse-drawn, but it was yeah. very nice. <laughs> and... They showed up with all of their gear ready to go, and they get what was the longest ladder in their entire department, and it is 30 feet too short. Yikes. Because here's the problem. The New York City firefighters were not used to this changing New York City landscape. Right. They hadn't caught up to the new skyline. No. So their equipment... Seat was like great. Sure. For a brownstone. Yeah. A low rise. We could do that. Anything that's three floors, I'm there. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to work anymore in New York. Mm -hmm. And this, this is um a sad learning moment for the fire department that they are they are also not up to date on on this changing environment. Um, so that's 
a really upsetting part of this tragedy. Completely out of options, knowing there's no way through the fire, women are realizing they have to choose between staying where they are and facing certain death or trying to jump. Some are pushed out forcibly Mm. by those trying to get air or to jump themselves. There are certain, I believe the first person to jump was a man. And then there was also a, a couple, a young boy and girl who they kissed each other and then jumped. Wow. Yeah, that was early on. And women and and some men, it, but it was mostly women, had been jumping prior to the FDNY even getting there. Like I had mentioned, some people had tried to help them. There was nothing anybody could do. But people were continuously trying to coax them to stay put, to not jump, wait till the fire department gets here. And the ladders were obviously a huge blow to them feeling like, oh, we'll be able to get out of this. So once they saw the ladders didn't fit, I think that kind of fueled more people to panic and start Mm -hmm. to jump. Mm -hmm. But the FDNY did bring nets thinking, okay, this is the only choice now. We're going to try to catch them. But at that height, the velocity at which these women are falling their bodies are too... Yeah, you've already got terminal velocity going. It's so awful. So mm-hmm. they're, the force is so intense that it's ripping the nets out of the firefighters' hands like and like ripping the flesh of the firefighters' mm-hmm. hands. That's how tense... Yeah, getting rope burns. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And God bless them because they, despite their hands bleeding and raw, they try over and over again to catch at least one of these people. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't. They just couldn't. And some of these people were already burning when they jumped. Right. Because that's an image. That's a, that's an image and continued to burn on the sidewalk as they were dead, laying mm. there dead to the point where the firefighters had to actually extinguish the human beings laying dead on the sidewalk. Like this, the anybody standing there, I don't know how you go on with your life after very that. traumatizing very graphic I, I just can't and what's also really awful is any any firefighter will tell you if they've ever been involved in in something that's really severe when they reach a point where they can't do anything it's the worst feeling in the world for them and not only are these men not able to uh give aid they are actually becoming endangered because of these human beings falling and debris is also falling. So some of their horses are getting injured. Their equipment is getting damaged and some right. of them are getting hit. So now we have so to they have, people on the ground. Exactly. So they have to pull themselves back too mm-hmm. to allow this fucking nightmare to just go on and basically what we know about these buildings is that you know the prevailing wisdom was that the fire would burn out Eventually it runs out of fuel. It runs out of things to yep. burn. And the house is made the house. The building is made of steel. And so if it's right. made, if it's made correctly, the building will stand. And mo- mo- most of these buildings, Empire State Building was hit by a plane, yep. burned for hours. They do now, survive. Yeah. It's just get the people out. And then if you can't get the people out, oh my God, you know, those poor mm-hmm. people, you know, and yeah. the difficult choices they have to make with that incessant heat that seems like it's never going to go away. No. And is, you know, literally killing them. Yeah. I mean, I again going going into your like your lizard brain, the most mm-hmm. primal part of you, that fear of of fire, of burning, I think that is scarier than just like, you know, when people are in a fire and they start to break windows and it's like, no, 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 you can't do that because you're adding oxygen into Correct. the room and you're making it worse. But you just you have to breathe. You're mm-hmm. you're like very human need to breathe and not be on fire kind of it it goes over anything else of course all your rationality is out the window oh gone completely gone and so all told 58 human beings died from jumping or falling out the window of the triangle shirtways factory one woman apparently survived the initial fall which is incredible in and of itself but she died within minutes Mm. so Ultimately, anyone who had not jumped or found a means of escape remained inside the factory, and these individuals obviously would die from either initially smoke inhalation or literally being burned alive. Mm -hmm. So that first fire alarm was set off at 4.45. By 5.15, it's all over. It's done. 30 minutes and 146 people would ultimately be dead because of this tragedy. 
some dying again, not in the moment, but soon thereafter. 30 minutes is just a whirlwind. No time. That's no time. And things that I've said have said it was closer to like 18 to 20. I think 30 is probably when they got the fire out mm-hmm. completely. Mm-hmm. But I think probably the deaths that they were aware of that were visible, it was after the first 18 to 20 minutes. Right. So, yeah, these these people never stood a chance of surviving. And where are the owners at this point? Oh, I imagine they are They've scurried into the crowd from next door. <laughs> I would, I personally, I, I would have maybe left the fucking country. Yeah. I did read some reports that they were, of course, immediately found by reporters and they're having questions hurled at them. And it would seem, I, I think it was, I forget if it was Blank or Harris, but one of them was like very fucking shaken. Right. And you know, they had other families who were family members who worked in the factory. And supposedly they at that time, they also didn't know if they had gotten out. Mm. So it's also personal for them, which is, makes it even crazier. Like you work here. People and you, you preserve love the system. Yeah. People you you love work here. What the fuck is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's mind blowing to me. It's, it really is. And the sad thing is we wouldn't even be talking about these guys. They're just one of two of thousands oh. of like minds. But because yeah. this horrible tragedy happened, this focusing event, they're put on trial socially, you know. Yeah. For all the- and they are obscure. I mean, yeah. in the grand scheme of things, no one gives a shit no. what their names are. No. Fuck them. Like, they're not important. So this scene is just, it's beyond our imaginations. It is so gory and heartbreaking. There are a lot a lot more photos than you would think. Mm-hmm. And I was saying to Luke before we started recording, the accounts in the newspapers are so fucking grisly that I didn't even want to repeat a lot of the stuff that was written mm-hmm. in these papers. Very, uh, very sensational. And the photos are also very sensational. And they're splashed across the front page sure. of every paper. So the morbidity sells papers. I'm sure you've seen the really famous one of um, it's kind of the row of women's bodies. Yes. And you, yeah. I mean, you see them. These are people laying on a sidewalk, a pile of humans. So yeah, we'll, I guess we'll post some of them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like, <laughs> like this disclaimer. is a level of morbidity. Like we haven't really posted a lot of death photos on our Instagram nope. and stuff before. I don't know how, how I feel about it. Like, it's not like you can't look it up. You can. So We'll probably maybe at least do like check a out party. faces of death people if you're really. I wanna, know we'll do tonight. we'll do the yeah. content trigger thing. You know how they have that option on yeah, social media. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the best the best thing we can do. But yeah, you didn't have that option in 1911. You just walked out your fucking front door, and that was on the front page. So that was great. And of course, the city is bereft. Mm-hmm. This is horrifying. No one could have ever dreamed anything like this could ever happen. In recent memory, there was nothing like this. And everybody knows somebody who works in a factory like that. So it becomes very universal immediately. Yep. So these feelings of sorrow very quickly shift into anger once the investigation goes underway. And they discover all of those things that I had mentioned in the last episode. All of the little like, oopsies or eh, it's fine and people become fucking furious and they learn about a lot of this not just through reporters but because the investigation kind of gets out there pretty quickly and that leads to the indictment of harris and blank on seven counts charging them with manslaughter in the second degree under section 80 of the labor code and that is the code that states that doors cannot be locked during working hours. So they had directly violated that according to this grand jury. Right. Sadly, a jury felt that the, uh, the burden of proof on the prosecution, they did not do their job. Uh, They had not proven without a doubt that the men knew the doors were locked. They sort of played in the trial. They played it like, Oh, did the foreman lock the doors? Mm-hmm. They aren't normally locked. And they had all these witnesses come. I would like to do a totally separate episode, probably a Patreon, on the investigation and the trial because it is fascinating. 
fascinating. And some of the testimony is so great. There's some really sassy factory worker testimony Mm -hmm. that you will love. It is so good. Um, So yeah, stay tuned for that. But the most important part of that story is that they're fucking acquitted, which is awful. (sighs) Damn. I know. However, in one tiny bit of sort of justice, uh, they are found liable of wrongful death in the civil suit. Mm. That doesn't happen until a couple of years later in 1913. But plaintiffs do get a monetary compensation. It is the amount of $75 per deceased victim. Isn't that, doesn't that feel good that that's what a human being's life is worth? It's never enough, is it? It's never enough, but that's kind of extra not enough. Also, with this this little caveat, this extra. It's little- like seventy two cents on the dollar. It's for women, right? It's like you know, it's very, it's very, it's very that. <laughs> Wait till I tell you this next part. <laughs> the worst part is, oh, these poor fuckers have to pay seventy five dollars per person of one hundred and forty six people. Really, not that bad. But don't worry, they'll be okay because they got a shit ton of money from the insurance company, right? They got about uh, $60,000, which is about 400 per victim. Sure. So they made money on this deal. Ouch. And here's something really fun about these fucks. This had actually been their, let me think, was this their fourth or fifth factory fire? Mm. Oh, no. Previously, some of these factories had actually burned down completely. Mm-hmm. And they collected insurance money on that, too. So there was initial suspicion that perhaps this had been on purpose, but with them being in the building and their kids being in the building that day and like a lot of their family, immediately that conspiracy kind of dried up. Yeah. But I will say this, part of their motivation to not try harder definitely was, well, worst case scenario. We'll make money. Cap, It's capitalist casino. And sadly, this was a common problem solver Mm -hmm. for a lot of these factory owners who worked in the garment industry when the business started to bust and was having a bad time. All right. Guess we got to layer up. I could buy all new machines or could just wait until it just explodes. Or maybe, maybe someone will accidentally quote light on match. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. True. True. Yep. Yep. So rampant insurance fraud. The other reason why the, that like conspiracy theory doesn't totally shake out is because all the other ones happened like at night after the workers were gone. Like it's just on paper. It's so clearly insurance fraud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas this this really does not look like that at all. Hmm. And how I mean, the idea of it is so beyond the pale. I think I, I personally can't even accept it if it was real because it's just right. hard to fathom. But I don't. I think they were dicks. I don't think they were fucking that bad. (laughs) (laughs) At least I don't, I want to hope they weren't. Uh, And bully for them. They also very soon after the, they were acquitted, they decide, well, we got to keep business going. So they open a new spot on 16th and fifth Avenue. Hmm. (laughs) These fucking guys, (laughs) their new place. Upon inspection, it's discovered it is not fireproofed. It doesn't have fire escapes. It doesn't have adequate exits. Mm. And Same old, same old. And worse than that, in August of 1913, Max Blank is even charged with locking one of the factory fucking doors during working hours. Don't do it. Don't do it. Like, what is wrong with you? And here's possibly actually the worst part is he is he's brought to court and he's fined Mm -hmm. $20, which for a guy making the kind of money he's making is really not much. And apparently the judge apologized to him for the inconvenience. Uh Everything is trash. (laughs) Very disappointing. Yeah. And and further inspections would happen, and the, the factory was constantly covered in fucking, you know, flammable shit. It was always a mess in there. It was the same exact shit that happened at Triangle. 
But apparently, I guess after that one, they did have another court appearance and a fine. And the judge was like, you're done. No more. No more for you. And they ceased their operations in 1918. So bye. See ya. <laughs> Fuckers. Peace. So, so there is no real justice, which is one of the most painful parts of this story. However, this is so not the end of the story. Because what this does is it lights a fucking fire in the labor force. Mm -hmm. People go, enough. Enough. We, can't, we cannot do this anymore. And we see this especially from the Women's Train Union League that existed in New York at the time. On April 2nd, 1911, very soon after the fire, a woman named Rose Schneiderman, who was a socialist and a union activist herself, she went to this memorial meeting and she made this incredible speech, which you, if you ever have the chance to read it, guys, it's, it's phenomenally inspiring from beginning to end. But this is just a short excerpt. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in this city. Every week, I must learn of the untimely death of one of my sister workers. Every year, thousands of us are maimed. The life of men and women is so cheap and property is so sacred. There are so many of us for one job, it matters little if 146 of us are burned to death. Too much blood has been spilled. I know from my experience, it is up to the working people to save themselves. The only way they can save themselves is by a strong working class movement. So the meat grinder. Oh, yeah. So I mean, the, so the socialism is strong y'all this, and this <laughs> is how this happens. <laughs> Absolutely. And politicians begin to hear this call mm -hmm. and they finally are like, yeah, I guess we fucking should do something. <laughs> this is pretty bad. <laughs> and then with it. So, and it's honestly for New York legislation, it's pretty fast because three months later, I think it was after the April talk that she did mm -hmm. and not the fire. I, so at three months within that John Alden Dix, who was the governor of New York at the time, uh, he signed a law which would create this factory investigating committee. Mm which ultimately did these mass investigations of factory all over Manhattan. And the end result was basically, to put it mildly, holy shit. You're all wrong. <laughs> it was something like 92% of factories were not in compliance to some extent or another. Mm -hmm. So that then led to eight laws covering fire safety, factory inspection, and sanitation and employment rules for women and children. Then in 1912, activists and legislators in New York State enact another 25 laws that enhance those labor protections. Mm. And, and they are amongst the most progressive in the nation. This is stuff to protect women and children in terms of hours and financial compensation and all that stuff. So, I mean, this is, this is major, major movement. Mm -hmm. And what's really incredible is that many of these reforms become sort of the the bedrock, if you will, of the New Deal. Because mm. FDR is a part of New York when all of this shit is happening. And so this is it's it's such an important moment, not just because of the way that it changed labor in New York, but it changed this country mm -hmm. in a humongous way. And a lot of the people who worked on this legislation in New York were ultimately working on the New Deal. Right. He he brought on a lot of his people from that mm -hmm. time, FDR, so it's, which is super cool. All of the New Deal and all of this legislation, this would also be the base for the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which was passed in 1970, whose primary mission is to ensure that employees carry out their tasks under safe working conditions. And this continues to be vital to all of us who are working Americans to this very day. The bedrock of our modern work culture and protections for employees. So like, wow. <laughs> and what, and at what a cost, what a, at, at what cost, but thank God that it was heard mm -hmm. that it didn't, that these, these, this senseless tragedy didn't fall on deaf ears, sure. deaf ears like we see over and over again in this country with so many things that this actually moved people so greatly that everyone said, OK, yeah, no, 
we're done. Well, and the the it was so easy to vilify the strikers and the socialists and the rebel rousers and the demonstrators. And here you have these victims, these people who are just victims of greed and victims of negligence. And you can't you can't deny that the humanity and of course the photography, the evidence, like you had to confront it and people couldn't look away. Yeah. But then they thought, okay, what does this mean? You know, and one of the documentaries that I had I had watched, there was a quote from a spectator who said as we watched the girls falling to the ground, I began to realize, oh, these are those shirtwaist girls mm-hmm. who were protesting here last year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is that is it. They, this wouldn't even be happening if all of their needs had been met. Right. They're not just loafers. They're not and if you hadn't been laughing at them and being scabs and anything else that, you know, I mean, it's just... It's it's devastating, but also, you know, thank God. Thank God people heard it. So there's so much today for the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in terms of obviously the recognition of its history. You can you can generally find exhibits and information on it at some of the major New York history institutions. But I think the most relevant thing is the building itself, you guys. Still there. She still stands. So the Ash Building, this is 2329 Washington Place. It is no longer called the Ash Building. Um, After the fire, it was repaired and continued to be leased to all the other businesses. And eventually, in 1916, it was actually NYU who took over the lease on the eighth floor. Eventually, they took over the lease of the entire building. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that became an NYU building. And it was officially donated to NYU in 1929 uh, by Frederick Brown. So then it became known as the Brown Building. And it has been an academic building ever since. I think that's fucking weird and creepy as hell. (laughs) Do they do tours? Do they do tours? All those floors. I was trying to look really quickly because yeah. it was one thing that I hadn't had time to research. I was yeah. like, what classes are taught on those floors? Right. Like, whose fucking office has to be on that floor? Because I'd be like, mm, cursed, no, thank you. cursed, cursed. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was briefly reading an article from a security guard that was like, if there was ever a place that was going to be full of ghosts, it's this place. Right. Yeah. Um, I would never go on those floors. I would be no. so terrified. Creepy. creepy, creepy. No, no, no. No, thank you. But Yes, the building itself still stands. There is a marker there, a plaque, uh, starting with the 50th anniversary of the fire. And each year since, the New York City Fire Department has been part of marking the anniversary of the Triangle Fire with a memorial ceremony of some kind in Mm -hmm. front of the building. And it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places and was named a historical landmark in 1991, which is like, why did it take so long? But whatever. Usually it takes at least 50 years. No shit. <laughs> well, it's like a building has to be 50 years old. Like it's a whole thing. Or well, the, the event has 50 years. Like Yeah, the, the building thing. was built in like, what was it? Like 1902. The tragedy happened in 1911. Yeah, this is, this is still like kind of late. And it is not designated a New York City landmark till 2003. Fucking New York. It's it's funny how these things. So it's funny how these things take take time, and just a lot of them are like, well, who's gonna do the work to put it together, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. so it's a whole nomination form and <laughs> thank, thankless work. Oh, thankless work for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is currently no memorial at this moment that stands. But that's changing. However. <laughs> There is this alliance. It's called Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition, and it consists of over 200 organizations and individuals. They started in 2008 in preparation of the 100th anniversary of the fire. They were hoping to encourage and coordinate these nationwide activities to remember the centennial in the hopes of also creating a permanent public memorial to honor the victims. If you, I imagine there has to be video of it online, but I watched the Centennial here in New York City Mm -hmm. and it was very, very moving. People were carrying shirtwaists. People had had a triangle coalition symbol that they were carrying around. And at 445, which was obviously the moment the first fire alarm was sounded, hundreds of bells rang out um, in cities and towns apparently across the nation that had been part of their like coordinating mm-hmm. efforts on the part of the that coalition it was a really 
incredible thing. The movement towards getting a memorial has taken a long time, but apparently it is going to be unveiled and dedicated on October 11th of this year. Yes, it's incredible. We are real close, you guys. I'm so excited. What do you think of the rendering? I don't know. <laughs> I don't love it. I don't love it. I'm like, I'm glad it's there, but I don't like it. <laughs> I'm like, I feel like I never like memorials. Oh, no, it's like it reminds me of the Air Force Memorial in DC, like the one. Oh the, yeah. The, the, it's like the, the spires turning out. Like it's yeah. it's very avant-garde. It's very you know artistic. Yeah. Hang on, let me look at it again because I haven't looked at it in a few days. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's not it's not fantastic. It's I'm glad it's happening, but yeah, it's just not, I don't know. It's a, it doesn't have any We're real old like, school. We're old it does, school. It doesn't speak to me. No, that's all. But, but it's there's but I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad that there's names. I'm glad that at least it's not grotesque. At least it's not ghost. It's not grotesque and it's yeah. and frankly, yeah, it's far too long for it to have gone on with nothing real. Must be so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember getting those pamphlets when we worked downtown for the shirtwaist, and I was always like, oh, I always wanted to go to the comm commemoration. Um, and it's so great that it's a relatively new movement, you know, in terms know. of actual commemoration. And But it sucks that they, <sighs> the last survivor actually died in 2001 or three, wow. I forget, mm. which is crazy. She was 107. God bless her. Yeah. So it sucks that she never got to see it in her lifetime, but I'm sure she deeply appreciated the annual ceremonies that were done. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I'm so, so happy. I cannot wait to get to see it in person. Oh, one thing I really liked about the memorial is that it's actually telling the story of the fires in the languages that were spoken by the victims. Oh, that's so great. It's going to be in English, uh, English, Yiddish, and Italian. That's great. And it also is supposedly one of the only memorials in all of America that is dedicated to workers. So if you're ever in New York City on Labor Day, pay respects, guys. Go there, please. Well, this is so important because the history of labor relations and movements in this country is really reductive and glossy and like yeah it's just haymarket maybe if you have a really good teacher and like <laughs> triangle shirtwaist factory fire. i don't know bull bear i don't know <laughs> i mean it's just not talked about and i you know i think we, we we teased this in the first episode of that you know there's a there's a real allergy in this country you know you and i worked in museums they're always terrified of unionization terrified i mean you know think about jimmy hoffa in the 20th century like what the unions become as a force yeah. as a powerful force in this country and the pension funds are these massive bankrolls unions absolutely <laughs> unions like anything because they're run by humans yeah can be very corrupt and of horrible course. yes i was just talking to my friend the other day who's a teacher and she has to go back uau she has to go back from her maternity leave and they only get six weeks. And I'm like, what the fuck is your union for that? You get six weeks of maternity leave in this day and age. And she's like, oh, they don't do shit for us, really. Right. And a lot of the time it does feel like that, like the unions are just getting in fights rather than yeah. actually helping the people who are their members. It all comes down to collective bargaining and like moving mm -hmm. a couple of numbers, a couple of things here and there. And, you know, it's it's like direct democracy in a sense. You're, you're It's not direct democracy. It's more of a republic. You've given up your vote to your, you, your shop steward, you know, yeah. and what they say ultimately goes. Yeah. And they're not all great, but they're still But they'll important. prevent you from being fired unjustly, right? Hopefully. Yep. And they fight for... You having breaks, you having adequate pay, That's you right. getting what you need to be part of the workforce yep. and not and hopefully not fucking die on the job. And it's interesting to think about where we're going as a society with more gig work and like yeah. sort of this like um, we're, we're almost in like a post-union world now where most people aren't in union work, you know, whereas yeah. our parents, grand, grandparents generation, you could work for a factory or, you know, a telephone company and raise four kids and send them all to college. And like it was just a. I mean, I, Different. I was in I was in the teachers union briefly because yeah. I was professor. And so if I hadn't been, I wouldn't have had insurance. Right. You know what I mean? And no. I was like a part time worker. And it's like, why is this such a novel thing that a part time worker deserves to have fucking insurance? <laughs> Who else is going to look out for you? Yeah, Sam, that's for sure. So, yeah, no, I was very grateful for my to pay my union dues and 
be able to get fucking medical care. Yeah. So thanks unions. You could do better, but couldn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> we're waiting for the the synthesis of where this is all going. Yes, we're in the we're in the antithesis moment right now. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys for uh, sticking it out. For those of you who listened to all of the details of this episode, not an easy one to listen to, I know, but beyond important. And I'm so glad that we got to spend Labor Day with you. Thanks so much for Thank listening. You. Thank you for shedding light on this morbid topic, Katie. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>